What's going on with fisheries and aquaculture? And most importantly, how did the new regulations impact you? Kirsten Groover and Deep Banzel Gage from Beverage and Diamond are here to tell us all about it. I'm Lawrence Cluddy, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to jump right into our topic. But first, thank you, Note at Note is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. And that's Noda spelled N O T A. And remember, terms and conditions may apply. Okay, let's greet our guests, Kirsten Groover and Deep D. Banzel Gage from the law firm of Beverage and Diamond. Welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) Hi there. So I don't know if that was enthusiastic enough. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks, Lawrence. Yeah, it's great to be here. (laughs) No, absolutely. Thank you all for uh, showing up. So, uh, you know, Kirsten, you're an associate at your firm and Deepti, you're a law clerk. Uh, Kirsten, I want to start with you. You know, you're in active practice right now. So tell us about the work you do at your firm. Yeah, I am actually based out of Beverage and Diamond's Seattle office. And so fisheries and aquaculture is a common theme within this region. And so it's fun to kind of keep attuned of that. But I generally try to focus my practice on corporate sustainability and supply chain, climate change type work. And I get the privilege of doing that on a mostly daily basis. So that's my spiel. Excellent. Excellent. So Deep D, uh, my, my uh, spidey sense is telling me that uh, you were responsible for this law, National Law Review article that I found. And somehow you looped in some senior associates at this firm that you're working at to help you with it. Is that correct? Yeah. And actually, sorry, Lawrence, just to correct you, I am an associate. Um, oh. I was a law clerk uh, last year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I apologize for that. The National Law Review article still has you listed as law clerk. Oh, so, no. So my okay. apologies. Sorry about that. No worries. But kudos on dragging in some senior associates to help you with the article. That is a bonus move. This is a National Law Review article, and it was featured about this key trends impacting fisheries and aquaculture in the United States. And so Deep D and Kirsten got my attention right away. You know, I, I grew up spending a lot of time in the outdoors, and I still do. But uh, there's a bunch of new regulations out there. They're coming from different authority sources, but it seems like they're sort of coming to a confluence here. And it looks like there's going to be quite a few changes to fisheries and aquaculture industries. And so if you could sum that up in one sentence, how would you phrase it? That's a tough order, Lawrence, one sentence, but we'll give it a a best shot. You're absolutely right. I think that we are seeing a lot of changes. And what we're seeing is that Generally, these changes stem from an increased focus on climate change and environmental stewardship, whether that's from the Biden administration's whole of government approach to climate change or whether it's more market or consumer driven desires to mitigate mitigate impacts or environmental impacts. That focus is changing the legal and the regulatory landscape, and it's affecting all stakeholders, including those within the fisheries and aquaculture industries. And as you mentioned, it's kind of an array of chain or it's an array of areas that we're seeing these changes occur in. And that includes introduced legislation or reintroduced or proposed late agency guidance or rulemakings or even just litigation from increased enforcement actions. And because it's happening on so many different levels, it means that many stakeholders are impacted, whether that's fishermen, whether it's seafood companies fishing communities, and vessel owners. 
it's just impacting a lot of people and or it has the potential to impact a lot of people, these changes. Yeah, one of those uh, big areas of impact is the practice of illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. Now, that sounds bad. So but Deep D, why is that such a problem for the sustainability of our fisheries and our sea life and the environment? I think maybe just to take it back a step, I can explain a little bit about the regulatory regime and then kind of go into why that regime exists and why illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing matters. So the chief federal agency regulating fisheries and fishing activity at sea is NOAA, otherwise known as the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So they have congressional authority uh, via the Magnuson-Stevens Act to develop regulations related to fisheries. The purpose of those regulations is so that the federal government can control fishing activities, both recreational and commercial, to preserve and support fish populations for future generations. So basically, given the fact that the more people fish, the less fish there will be in the ocean and the less reproductive fish there may be in the ocean, NOAA's just trying to regulate and manage those populations sustainably in order to ensure that, you know, we have fish for our children and our children's children into the future. Basically, it is a sustainability issue. And why illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing matters is because People are fishing outside of the requirements of NOAA. So NOAA will regulate fishing by catch size, by type of fish, by seasonality, by location. If somebody's fishing outside of these parameters, it's kind of interrupting this whole regulatory regime and thereby can impact the sustainability of fisheries. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a flavor as to why this is such a pressing issue, you know, as population expands, as fish consumption expands, and and just generally why, um, you know, our government plays a huge role in managing these sorts of economic, social, and environmental issues. Well, let's loop that into the Maritime Securities and Fisheries Enforcement Act. So what what exactly is that particular act designed to do? Yeah, so that was an act, also known as the SAFE Act, um, that was passed last year. So it was essentially designed to help ensure sustainability in fisheries and increase collaboration and enforcement. So it did this by creating something called the Interagency Working Group, which is composed of a number of federal agencies, including NOAA, as I mentioned, uh, the U.S. Coast Guard, U.S. Navy, other Department of Defense agencies, the State Department, Customs and Borders, the list goes on. And the intention behind creating this group and this collaborative effort was to improve fisheries law enforcement against um, illegal fishing in order to eventually eliminate illegal fishing. Now, from your article, I understand that there could be some pretty steep penalties for people that uh, choose to violate these uh, new regulations. So can you uh, share with us some of those some of those more extreme penalties? Yeah, yeah. I can give actually an illustrative recent example. There was a recent case that came out of an operation done by law enforcement officials known as Operation Bahamarama. So in that case, um, a fisherman was caught having captured tons of reef fish without a license in Bahamian waters and then was also caught having previously uh, sold illegally sourced fish. The Bahamian waters were closed at the time due to COVID-19, and regardless, the fisherman didn't have the permits he needed in order to fish in that that area. 
So this man was caught by U.S. enforcement officials and then turned over to the DOJ. After prosecution, the man was required to forfeit his boat to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas in restitution for illegally catching the fish in their waters. So that kind of shows one really unusual example of a penalty, but it, it kind of is a is a solution-oriented penalty in the sense that this new boat was then given to the government to use in their own patrolling and enforcement to thereby decrease the burden of the U.S. Outside of that penalty, there are also your traditional, you know, monetary penalties and criminal indictment is also a potential possibility as well. Yeah, those kind of penalties, you know, I've heard of those, uh, you know, I grew up in the state of Colorado and one of the commonly known things was that if you did not have your, uh, you know, fishing license or if you did not, if you didn't have your tags and were hunting in an area that you were not allowed to be in, they would seize your vehicle. You would never get it back. It's an extreme penalty, but it's one that got around. And I think uh, because it's, uh, you know, it was well known, people, you know, took care to make sure that they had all their paperwork done. So let's uh, let's transition over to the the businesses that uh, probably need to change check in. So, you know, all of these are coming to a confluence. They're going to be relatively updated. And so there's some businesses out there, they're kind of coming back from COVID. And so they're, uh, you know, kind of dusting things off and they're getting started again. So uh, Deep D, you know, uh, what type of businesses probably need to call their attorney, check in, make sure that everything they're doing still follows the law? Yeah. So there's kind of a wide net of, you know, businesses that are implicated by these regulations. I like how you use the term wide net. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Play on words there. <laughs> um, but so fishermen are, are you know, the main people who need to be mindful of these regulations since many of the re- regulations are targeted towards the fishing itself. And this this includes, you know, commercial fisher guides, recreational fishers, vessel owners where fishing may be taking place. And then also I want to note as well, commercial fish and seafood dealers also need to be mindful of these regulations because, you know, when we say illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, the unreported part of that involves a different part of the regulatory scheme. So so both fishermen and commercial fish and seafood dealers are required to report, one, their catch, and then two, for the dealers, report, you know, what they're buying directly from the fishermen. And so this is part of that whole regime of NOAA trying to understand, you know, what transactions are taking place, how much fish are coming out of the ocean in order to make the rules for the next year. So so all of these parties are kind of implicated by these laws and need to make sure that they're, you know, doing the proper, following their permits, doing the proper reporting steps, and just keep being mindful of how NOAA and other agencies are, are regulating fishing operations. Now, o- oceanic plastics is something that I've only recently become aware of, admittedly. And so when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, ocean is so big. You know, if there's a couple of things that fall off, uh, you know, shipping boats, you know, not such a big deal until I started reading a little bit more about it. And, you know, some of the big problems with that is it's getting into our sea life and it's, uh, you know, it's affecting us because we eat that sea life. And so as I understand that there's been some some recent uh, efforts here to try to curtail that dumping of plastics into the ocean. Uh, part of it's done by the United Nations. But another part of it is the uh, the Save Our Seas Act 2.0, more of a domestic approach. And so can one of you tell me about that and just kind of what's going on with those? What 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 does that uh, look like going forward? So kind of just as you noted, the UN Environmental Assembly on the International Front has started to make a really big focus on marine litter and microplastics in the ocean. You may have seen articles out in the news, you know, about these 
plastic islands that have formed from all of the debris that's been collecting. So the UN is trying to target those sorts of issues and is actually has made the goal of developing an international legally binding mechanism or basically a plastics treaty to kind of address these issues. And then on the domestic side, this past year in December, Congress passed the Save Our Seas Act 2.0. So that's also kind of a play on words. It stands for SOS 2.0. And that that act passed with bipartisan support. The act not only requires the U.S. to collaborate on international agreements, but it also provides grants and requires research on topics like microfibers, microplastics, plastic movement, technology to address marine debris, and then recycling of fishing gear and vessels. So specifically related to fisheries, the act requires research regarding the feasibility of potentially an incentive program for fishermen to collect and properly dispose of marine debris found at sea or even their own used gear that's that's no longer usable for their jobs. Similar programs have been developed in other countries. So while this act only tries to, you know, conduct research on potential incentive programs, it kind of signals that the U.S. government is thinking to potentially implement a program. You know, there's different programs like in Korea. I know they have a gear buyback program. And in um, Northern Europe, they have a waste reception program where you can throw away your old nets for free. So basically, the world and the U.S. are at the very beginning stages of planning on what they want to do about marine litter. But parties and countries are coming together in order to begin research and discussions on on how to tackle this huge issue. All right. Now, we're just about out of time, but I do want to get through uh, two more questions. And so my next one is about marketing shame. And so as I understand that the FTC is going to try to diminish eco brags when it comes to advertising your products, say you sell some type of seafood, let's say it's tuna. And I was trying to come up with a, a good analogy here. And so uh, the best one I could come up with is that maybe I own a company called Barracuda Tuna. Let's say it's Happy Barracuda Tuna. And uh, so I've got a happy little Barracuda on my can of tuna. He's got a little uh, knife and fork and he runs around chasing tuna because that's what he likes to eat. So that's my little mascot for the company. Now, some consumers come by and they say, hey, we know that sometimes accidentally you net a Barracuda when you're trying to net tuna. And that does not seem like something that would make a Barracuda happy. So you can't fairly depict, you know, a happy Barracuda on your tuna cans. And so curious, I think this is a question for you. What is the FTC going to do about that if they find out that I've got happy barracudas being caught in my nets. Yeah, I think that's a, a great analogy and it gets a, a general broader issue that we're seeing just overall increased enforcement by the FTC with regards to green marketing claims. The FTC is the regulate regulatory body that enforces uh, marketing claims and enforces the FTC Act that prohibits deceptive marketing claims within commerce. And so the FTC, with the voluminous number of different green claims out there, whether you're saying sustainable or eco-friendly or happy barracudas or green, I think with this influx of new terms, we are seeing new things that the FTC is looking at and trying to make sure that that gap between the environmental claim that's being marketed and what consumers understand that claim to be, that there's no disconnect there and that the, that the gap is Build. The FTC relies on the green guides, which provide kind of examples of different claims that 
marketers may use that may be deceptive. It's not all-encompassing, the different examples that are provided within these green guides, but it is kind of a key agency guidance document that anybody should look to if they're going to be making claims about their product, even if it is just something as simple as sustainable that can the use of the term could expose people to enforcement actions depending on the nature of the use. So I think that's kind of the biggest thing to keep in mind when looking forward. All right. My last question is related to the 30 by 30. And of course, this uh, comes out of President Biden's executive order 14008. Now, this is one that concerned me a little bit because we are coming out of uh, COVID shutdowns. And so a lot of industries out there have been heavily impacted. And of course, our supply lines are not quite back to where we were originally. And so consumer costs are going up, inflation's going up. And so this one has to do with the area where fishermen can fish. And so, Kirsten, can you tell me about that? Yeah, you're exactly right. I think that, I guess, just briefly, that 30-30 goal is to conserve at least 30% of U.S. lands and freshwater and, and 30% of U.S. oceans by 2030. And that's where the name comes from. But generally, there is concern that this increased focus on conservation may leave out industry or may increase overall conservation areas at the expense of areas for commercial fisheries. And so, one of the things that came out of this executive order was a directive to different agent heads of agencies and secretaries to create a report that helps the U.S. achieve these 30-30 goals. And one of the principles within that report emphasized the importance of pursuing collaborative and inclusive approach. And so it'll be important for stakeholders moving forward to keep track of those opportunities for input because it will be important moving forward for those voices to be heard, whether it's conservation, but also industry, so that there is an approach that is equitable and allows for both in achieving that 30-30 goal. Were there any estimates as to the additional cost that this might implicate? You know, So if you have less grounds or, I guess, less water areas to fish in, that means that uh, you know, you're going to be incurring some higher expenses. Of course, those higher expenses will be passed on to the consumer. So any estimates there that were batted around? You know, that's a good question. I haven't seen any indications of this, but given my rudimentary understanding of economics, it makes sense that that could be expected. But I haven't seen anything concrete on that. Well, Kirsten Adipti, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed talking with both of you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Lawrence. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please share it with a friend because sharing is caring. And who knows, they might even thank you for it. And one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. And that's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. Thank you so much for supporting this show, Noda. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew. As far as teams go, they're quite a catch. So very grateful they're on my side. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.